Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings' excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one. So think ahead. Thanks for listening. Hello there, space monkeys. You're back for the third installment of uh, the most amazing podcast ever produced by man on this planet. I'm being silly. I'm blowing sunshine out my own skirt. I'm fluffing my own feathers. I don't really mean all that stuff when I say it. You probably know me well enough by now to understand my slight sense of irony and my capacity to make a joke at my own expense. But in any case, here we are at the third installment of the podcast that I feel is pretty important because so many people suffer from hip drop in their cycling adventures and or what I'm referring to as the tendency to spiral. Which way do you spiral? So remember when we are talking about the spiral pattern of the human body, which all humans have a tendency to spiral, by the way, the question is just whether it's a problem or not for you. And if it's leading to dysfunction or pain or injury, then we've got to manage this spiral. Remember what Kit Laughlin teaches us. Kit is a mobility and stretching instructor. He's based in Australia. He's got a ton of free content on his web site and YouTube channel. I think his website is called stretchtherapy.net, if I'm not mistaken. And his YouTube channels, just kitlaughlin.com, which is spelled like Laughlin, but I'm saying it Laughlin. I think it's Laughlin. But who knows? He's Australian, so he probably says skeletal and aluminium. And on this channel, Kit talks about the concept of mobility or flexibility. And he points out that apparently in Australia and as well in the US, we've all sort of been brainwashed with the idea that you get vitamin D from milk. No, wait, that's not the idea we were brainwashed with. It was another idea. Which one was it again? Right. It was the idea that we stretch to avoid injury. So when we were grade schoolers and we went to play soccer or 
I don't know, whatever it was we did in PE class in grade school, we would stretch first. And we usually stretched by holding static stretches or maybe bouncing. This was 12 years old as I am. It was the early 70s. Well, the late 70s. And when we did this, we were told that we were stretching to avoid injury. So this painted a picture in our minds. The picture being that if you're more mobile, then you won't be injured. And if you're tight or inflexible, you will be injured. And Kit teaches us that this isn't really true. If we take a thousand subjects and we put them in a flexibility screen, a 10 or 20 point flexibility screen, what we get is a spectrum. We get a bell curve. And on one end of the bell curve, we get what Kit refers to as house brick, which is the Australian way to describe someone who's really inflexible. And on the other side of the curve, we get Gumby, which is my way to describe someone who is very mobile, hypermobile, more flexible than we want. This is our Toyota Corolla analogy from previous episodes. And we assume because of our grade school education that the person or the people on the side of the spectrum who are Gumby will have less injuries. And the people on the side of the spectrum who are house brick will have more injuries. And this is actually not the case. The better predictor of injury is simply people who have large asymmetries in their mobility. Hmm, that's interesting, you think. So we think of mobility and we think of asymmetries and we probably imagine one hamstring being tighter than the other or one quad being tighter than the other or one hip being tighter than the other. And this certain qual certainly qualifies as an asymmetry. I would offer that an asymmetrical pattern is also a spiral pattern. I would also offer that asymmetries could really occur front to back. So we could have an asymmetry in our ability to move in one plane uh, that is the sagittal plane, right? The sagittal plane being the plane that your legs move in when you walk or run. That's the sagittal plane of movement. And so that would be front to back. So if you can forward bend way more than you can back bend, then that would qualify as an asymmetry. Now, I have to be a little discerning or that on that or unpack that a little bit. Everyone can forward bend more than they can back bend. That's the way the human spine works. But what I'm saying is, if we have some range that is considered normal in forward bending or forward flexion, and some range that is considered normal in extension or spinal extension or back bending, as it's commonly referred to, colloquially referred to, and you are 100% of normal forward flexion range, and you are 20% of back extension range, I'm just making up numbers to illustrate the point, then that would be considered an asymmetry because you are deficient in your ability to extend your back. So you see the problem here. The problem is that, well, there are a couple, there are a couple things to discuss. They're not really problems. They're things to note. One is that our misconceptions about flexibility have probably led us to construct a world with a lot of shoulds. That is, I should stretch more belief systems about stretching, that stretching is good. And this is disnification of our world. You have to think beyond this. Stop disnifying everything. Everything's not a good guy or a bad guy in the movie. Stretching isn't good or bad. There's no such thing as a good or bad exercise. There is a properly prescribed exercise or an improperly prescribed exercise. There's an appropriate exercise that will give you the gains we want or the progress we want towards your goal 
or to improve your health or function. And then there are exercises that will make your health or function worse or won't do anything for you. These would be improperly prescribed. So I'm encouraging you to look at the world through more neutral lens, which I suppose is a form of non-attachment and or stoicism or some combination of the two. So when we're looking at our spiral pattern, if we view a human from the top down, someone who spirals counterclockwise would be someone who has what I would also call right hip drop or the tendency for a right hip to rock forward towards their front hub when they're in the cycling position, when they are hip hinged. And this really comes down to an inability to extend the hips and knees. This is what we're doing. We're pushing down on the pedals. So it comes down to an inability to do this with pelvic stability. And one of the fundamental ways to replicate this is in a single-legged squat or lunge, otherwise known as a lunge, same thing, or a deadlift. So let's make sure we understand the basic differences between a squat and a deadlift, because this is important for the concepts of our discussion. And I went over this in some of the other episodes, but it's really important. So I'm just going to recap here because it's central to the characteristics of hip drop that are important to us. So in a squat, imagine a back squat. So that's where you put the bar on your back behind your neck. And I know for those of you who aren't weightlifters, you're, you're going to have to just follow along with me for a few minutes to understand this concept. When we squat, what we're trying to do is keep the path of the bar relatively vertical. That means we don't want the bar to go out over the front of our toes because we probably fall over on our face and we don't want it to go behind our heels because likewise, we would probably fall over on our butts. And if you've got a lot of weight on your back, this is really problematic. We don't want this to happen. So when we squat, we're trying to keep a certain bar path. And by doing so, when we squat, we have two joints, well, three really that actually flex and extend. And so when you're at the top of the squat, you're starting the rep. That means you've just put the weight on your back and you're standing tall like a tree. You begin to descend. Three joints are flexing. Well, more than that really, but for simplicity, we'll say the hip is flexing, the knee is flexing, and the ankle's flexing, right? Triple flexion, we might say, of all three joints. But when we track the path of the hip, What's significant about a squat is that that hip goes up and down. It tracks vertically, primarily vertically. It doesn't move horizontally much. If it moves too far horizontally to the front, then the bar path will go over your toes and you'll probably be at risk of falling forwards. Conversely, if the bar path goes too far back, then you fall on your butt. So the the bar path goes vertical, which means your hip goes vertical. For the most part, there is some horizontal translation of the hip. Translation just means movement. So as we get lower in the squat, the butt will start to stick back a bit. It has to because as the hip flexes, the femur goes from a more vertical position. The femur is the upper leg bone, goes from the more vertical position to close to a horizontal position. And this is the position that we have during the top dead center of cycling, right? The top set dead center pedaling position of cycling. So that's what we need to know about a squat. The hip translates mostly vertically. It goes up and down. In a deadlift, as you might predict at this point, the opposite happens. The hip translates more horizontally. So we begin a deadlift by taking the bar from the ground. 
So you actually hinge at the hip. And when you have proper deadlift form, there isn't much flexion or extension of the knee. The knees are bent a little bit and they do bend a little bit and they straighten a little bit. That is they flex and they extend a little bit, but not, not as much as in the squat. Most of what happens during a proper deadlift is the hips kick out behind you. They move horizontally. They translate horizontally. And so what we can infer from this description, these descriptions of a squat and a deadlift are that when you squat, you've got a balanced force distribution between the knee and the hip, probably with more in the knee. Most people have more in the knee. We'll say that. We'll say it that way. In the deadlift, we have more force focused at the hip. So that's important. That means that you're making the force, you're making the, the power, we'll say, to move the weight from different joints. So these exercises will make you sore in different ways. Deadlifts will make your butt more sore and your hamstrings more sore, especially the hamstrings closer to your butt, otherwise known as your proximal hamstrings, the closer hamstrings or the closer end of the hamstrings. Whereas a squat will tend to make your quads more sore, especially your quads near your knee. And what we can observe is that generally speaking, we can sort of actually categorize athletes on one side of the spectrum or the other. Athletes tend to either prefer to deadlift or squat. And when they prefer these movements, it usually indicates that they prefer to make more force with their quads or with their hips. And this is interesting because sometimes athletes make more power with their quads. That is, they tend to use a strategy to make force with the knees more than with the hips. They focus torque around the knees more than the hips. And sometimes these athletes tend to have a lot of problems. Now we can have problems in lots of different places and a lot of athletes can cause dysfunction by their movement patterns. So this is where the reductionist aspect of coaching comes in. You try to figure out how the athlete is making force, what their strategy is for making force or power, and then you deconstruct it and then you educate them about how they're doing it. And then we ask the question, is this constructive or do we want to change it? And often we want to change it or at least try to influence that pattern. And this is, this is of course trainable. It's also easier said than done in some cases, because we have athletes who have been doing years and years of an activity, whether it's weightlifting or cycling or doing whatever they're doing. And they've had a certain strategy for a certain reason. And we have to consider the, the phenotype or the morphology of the rider plays into it for riders or for athletes. I'll say with longer femurs, this can change their strategy depending on what sport they're in. Athletes with shorter femurs can also have a different strategy, right? And we'll notice that weightlifters in particular, people who are good at squatting tend to be shorter athletes with more muscles in general, not always, but it's a common phenotype. And a lot of these athletes are better at making strength or, uh, sorry, better at making force with the knee. Okay. So why do we care about this as a cyclist, right? Well, both the knee and the hip are obviously involved in cycling. I would submit that the preferred way to ride a bike is to make more power with the hip than with the knee in most instances. However, I would also offer that that can change depending on the intensity. And when you are standing out of the saddle, especially sprinting at maximal force, this is a time to make more force with the knee. For most riders, it's not that you neglect the hip completely. You use the glutes and the hamstrings to extend the hip during downforce, 
but you're going to use more knee force during seat, uh, standing sprinting than you would at other moments. Conversely, I would offer that making power at the hip is a more sustainable way to make power in most instances. Why? Well, I can I can offer two reasons why I think this way. And if you're a strength and conditioning coach and you think I'm totally full of shit, then hit me back. Let me know why you think I'm wrong. Or if you're educated in some other way and you think I'm wrong, you don't have to be a strength and conditioning coach to disagree with me. I'm just using that as an example of someone who might find what I'm saying objectionable or interesting. Two reasons why I submit that making power, especially at submaximal intensities, so endurance pace or tempo pace, or maybe even threshold, would be more sustainable if we focus torque on the hip. I'm using force and torque somewhat interchangeably here, even though I know they're not the same thing, but in this, in the instance of making speed on the bike, we, I think they can be interchanged, at least in my mind at the moment they can. The two reasons are, one, I think that we have more muscle mass focused at the hip than we do at the knee. And whenever this is something that I constantly educate my riders about in the fit studio, whenever we focus effort in an area locally, we run the risk of fatigue of those local muscle fibers. So if you perform an endurance activity using your index finger only, well, whatever that is, uh, typing, I suppose, when those finger muscles get fatigued or a little tiny, you put a little barbell on the end of your finger and do little weights. When those fibers are fatigued, then you're smoked. You can't do anything else. But if we load share, if you use all four fingers to lift that barbell instead of just one, obviously you can lift the barbell for a lot longer, right? Stupid example that doesn't really exist in the real world, but you get the point. It's the same concept on the bike. When you get to the top of a climb after a maximal effort, especially one of about five to 10 minutes in length, really maximal, is your rate limiting factor at the end of that effort in the last few seconds of that effort, your quads, or do you have a balanced sense of fatigue throughout the lower leg? I would offer for that type of effort that most of the time we want to experience a balanced load because if you set up your bike in a way or your strategy for making power is dominated by making force at the knee and thus fatiguing the quads, especially the distal fibers of the quadriceps. If that's your strategy, then when those fibers are fatigued, they're tapped out. When, like glycogen is actually stored in the muscles. It's stored locally in the muscles and in the liver. So part of the problem is you run out of glycogen in those muscles. It actually, they actually run out of fuel. Plus there's a thing called fiber fatigue. So when you're depending on what effort we're talking about, your slow twitch, or your fast twitch fibers or both get totally smashed. Then you're, you're pretty much toast. You're dead in the water, right? So it's a rate limiting factor to your performance. If we set up your bike so that you can drive in the power phase of the pedal stroke with more muscle fibers, that is we're using not just the distal fibers of the quads or the, the, that's the quads that are closest to the kneecap, those fibers we're using all the fibers of the quads, plus your calves, plus your hamstrings, plus your glutes. Well, now the rate limiting factor will be something else, which will be higher up the chain. It'll probably be uh, lactate or VO2, right? It'll be some sort of metabolic construct limitation, but you're probably going faster 
because even at possibly at the expense of very, very short-term speed, maybe. But remember, unless you're racing a kilo, this doesn't make sense. Cycling is an endurance sport. So first, you got to get to the line. And you have to be able to make low and medium amounts of power all day long. And then you intermittently add bursts of power. This is the demands of cycling in most cases. I won't go down the rabbit hole of time trials and all that stuff at the moment. But this is the concept. We want to load share over multiple fibers, right? That's how we, that's one of my arguments for making more power at the hip, or at least being able to trade back and forth between those two strategies, hip, knee, hip, knee, hip, 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 knee, whatever. That's just a hypothetical example. It's not, it's not 100% knee and then 100% hip. Everything's on a spectrum. We're talking about shifting the load balance. So that's one reason I can offer to suggest that power is more sustainably made at the hip is fiber fatigue, reduction of rate limiting factors, local fiber fatigue. And then the second reason is simply that whenever we look at any sport at the highest level, we're talking about running, swimming, cycling, water polo. It's a hard one to quantify. Um, Golf. We're looking at any sport at the highest level. We see characteristics that the top athletes have. And when we analyze the movement patterns of these athletes, most of the time what we see, I would offer, is a strategy of proximal movement origin. That is, we have a quiet head, a still head for the most part, at least during submaximal efforts in cycling and depending on the rider during even maximal efforts. And we have a quiet torso. So we have a stable base from which to make power. And that suggests that the power at some level is originating from, it's originating centrally or proximally. That is to say, there's a natural law at work, which is power is generated first proximally and then distally. So true power in a home run swing of the bat or a 100 mile an hour pitch or 100 plus mile an hour pitch. It doesn't come from the fingers. The force doesn't come from the left calf muscle. When the pitcher lunges forward and cocks their right arm back, it doesn't come from the right forearm muscles. When he reaches back and extends at maximum extension of the shoulder and begins to propel the ball forward, The force originates from this core, from the center of the body. This is the origin. So this is why I suggest this simple natural law is why I would suggest that power is more sustainably made from the hips rather than the quads or the knee, I should say, because the hips are closer to the core. It's pretty simple. It's ridiculously simple, which is why I think it works. Okay, so why do we care so much about hips and knees and where the power is made? Who cares, Pierce? So when we examine our primal movement patterns of cycling, first, we see that cycling is a hip hinge. When you sit on the bike, you hinge forward and you are always in hip flexion during cycling. There is never a neutral hip or an extended hip. This is one of the reasons why if sitting is the new smoking, I have bad news for everybody because cycling is just more sitting, right? This sucks, but it's true. So sitting puts us in that hip flexed position, which shortens some of our hip 
flexors like the psoas and the rectus femoris and can cause some postural problems. And in this position, this hip hinged position, our second primal movement pattern is we're doing a series of lunges effectively. A lunge, to reference my discussion a moment ago about squats versus deadlifts, a lunge is simply a one-legged squat. And that's really what we're doing. We're squatting, but with one leg at a time. Squatting is bilateral. It uses two legs. Lunging is unilateral. It uses one leg. And cycling is 0% bilateral. There's no bilateral movement in cycling. You only use one leg at a time. There's also no concentric movement, uh, excuse me. There's no eccentric movement in cycling. The muscles are only loaded in one direction. That's on the downstroke while the fibers are getting longer. They're never loaded on the upstroke unless you ride a fixie in San Francisco with no brakes. And you have to backpedal when you go down these steep hills. That would be an example of eccentric loading in bikes. But most of us, that equation does not apply. So we have our deadlift, our hip hinged position, because we're reaching to the bars, we are hinged at the hip, and then we're lunging to make power on the bike. We're pushing down with one leg and then the other, and then the one and then the other. And when we do this, we're making a power at a combination of the two joints, the hip and the knee. And as I said, I offer that we are better served by making more power at the hip than at the knee. And when I see riders who make power at the knees, we tend to get certain problems. Knee pain being one of the more common outcomes, although there's other ones as well. So in this hip inch position, we're lunging and we're, we're driving the bike and we're making force on the pedals. And if someone is quad dominant or their strategy is to make more force. And so we have this situation where an athlete is potentially making more force at the knee than they are at the hip. And this can lead to instability at the hips. So it's quite common for athletes to be very strong in the quads. Uh, you might say quad dominant, that's their pattern. And they've got less stability happening at the hips. And one way this can be described is a bit of glute amnesia or glutes aren't firing. And some of you may have been to a PT and had this diagnosis or statement made about you. And there's something to this. People, when we are in a hip flexion pattern all the time, we'll say, or frequently during life or during our days, that is we're driving cars we're driving anything, driving a car, driving a desk, driving a bike, driving an airplane, you're sitting. And when you're sitting, it can shut down the function of the posterior chain. That is the glutes and hamstrings. And it can lead to a pattern of quad dominance. This is, this is reasonably common, I think. And cycling can spin up this problem or amplify this problem. Now, I'm not saying that everyone on this podcast or listening to this podcast who is asymmetry has this issue. I'm merely pointing out some common patterns that we want to be aware of. And when I talk about athletes who either have a hip dominant strategy or a knee dominant strategy in their movement patterns, well, you can kind of figure this out probably with yourself pretty easily. You, you maybe already have an idea, but it's pretty simple. Uh, if you are a person who lifts weights, lifts weights or have has in the past been a strength and conditioning type of athlete? Pretty simple. What do you prefer? Do you like squatting or do you prefer deadlifting? 
And if you say, oh, I like squatting much better than deadlifting. I never really got my head around in that deadlift. I never really got that good at deadlifting, but squatting was easy for me. Congratulations. You are probably a quad dominant athlete and you're most likely centered around making force at the knee more than at the hip and vice versa. If squats were never your thing and you really just prefer to go in and do some deadlifts, you're probably a hip focused athlete. And just like everything, there's a spectrum. I'm suggesting that more often athletes who are knee focused have problems. And I'm also suggesting that being hip focused is probably the better strategy for most cyclists, especially people who want to do stuff like unbound gravel, or I'll say long endurance events or ultras 200 unbound is an ultra. You can overdo either side. You can be too far. It's, it's a spectrum, just like anything. So you can be too knee focused. You can be too hip focused. So we have to have some of both. And ideally an athlete is durable and multifaceted. They've got many strategies they can use to power a bike. So when we go, when we go over short, steep climbs, we can go use the quads really effectively out of the saddle. When we're sprinting for the line, we can go into a knee focused torque strategy for the last 20 seconds of the race and hopefully win the sprint. However, during long climbs or long breakaways, when we're required to be making moderate levels of power or endurance levels of power for long periods, we want to be more efficient, then we can use more of a hip-based strategy. So I said this in the other, in the second episode, but I'm going to recap it here. The reason I'm talking about all this hip versus knee stuff, this is really important. My hypothesis and observation is that when someone has a significant spiral pattern, the ultimate root of this pattern, the, the million dollar question is why do they make this power this way? What's causing this twisting? It is fundamentally that there's an asymmetry in the way they're making power. And remember what Kit taught us about asymmetries. Asymmetry is the problem. When it spins out of control, that's what causes the dysfunction. So if someone is a counterclockwise spiral pattern, that is a right hip drop, that is your right hip is the one that hangs off the saddle. Your right shoulder and hand are further towards the bars. Your right hip rotates down towards the front hub. Your saddle height on the right is the one that tends to look lower and the saddle height on the left will look higher. Assuming you have equal bone lengths in lower leg osseous constructs, that is your femur and your tibia are the same length, more or less. In this case of right hip drop or counterclockwise spiral pattern, what we'll have is a pattern where the athlete is generating more force from the left hip and more force from the right knee. This is the issue. The pattern is you're driving from the knee on the dominant side and driving from the hip on the non-dominant side. Now, which do we change? Which do we address? And how do we address all that? Well, that is the million and $1 question. And I don't know the answer to that. A, B, it probably depends on the athlete because bioindividuality dominates everything. This is the common denominator. This pattern is the common denominator that I have noticed, but the outcome is completely different 
in everyone. So what works for one person may not work for another, but I would offer that we should simply do some of both. That is, we try to focus on generating more force at the hip in the right side, in this case, in this example of a right-handed hip drop or a counterclockwise spiral pattern. And we try to generate more force in the knee on the left side. So there's lots of ways to do that. And when you think about my previous comments on lunges, squats, and deadlifts, then you might already have some ideas, right? We can do some split stance deadlifts, focusing on the right glute, and we can do some lunges focusing on the left knee, right? That'd be a really good way to set up an exercise program to offset these asymmetries. Because if a lunge focuses on knee torque and we need more knee torque on our left side, and if a deadlift focuses on hip torque and we need more hip torque on our right side, then you might build a program around those exercises. So uh, one thing I want to clarify, most people are counterclockwise oriented spirals. They're, most people are right hip droppers. So I'm going to use that as our baseline definition because it's probably 90% of riders for all my examples here. I'm going to use that. I'm going to offer some general movements to offset the spiral pattern and also some more specific ones. And I'm just going to use the right uh, sided hip drop athlete as the generic example. So if you're a lefty and you're in the minority, then you need to reverse all the cues I'm giving you. I'll say that again. If you're a left-sided hip dropper, if you're a clockwise hip dropper, you got to reverse all the cues I'm giving you. So if I say, put your right hand here and your left foot there, you've got to flip those. This is the advantage of a podcast. You can just rewind and then write it all down if you want. I will produce some video content and written content to go along with this series. Uh, the written content is in process. It's mostly done. I'm using this content as notes for my cues right now for the pod. Haven't filmed the videos yet. That'll happen shortly. Hang tight. I appreciate your patience. So I'm going to give you verbal descriptions of how to do these exercises. And then I'm going to also produce the written content so you can read about it. And then eventually you can do the video. I know everybody wants video because it's just the way the world works right now. I would also offer that if you can't listen to someone's instructions and understand where the hell your body goes, then either the instructions really suck or we need to refine your listening skills because you should be able to take your left index finger and put it in your right ear hole without me saying it four times and you poking yourself in the eye. Cool. Overview of critical concepts to understand in this entire discussion. First thing I want to say is in particular, in the last couple of fit sessions, I've had athletes walk through my door and they've sort of been bummed out. And the reason they're bummed out is because we live in 2023 and they're trying to solve the problems they have in their lives, whether it's hip drop or knee pain or why they aren't going as fast as they want to on the bike or what's wrong with their diet or why they can't sleep well. And they do what a lot of people do, which is go on YouTube and they consult the mighty YouTube, Google, or the YouTube searches or whatever you want to call it. And they get, you know, articles like Healthline and stuff like that, WebMD, which are really kind of useless on the whole. But the bigger problem is as soon as they dig into things, they get conflicting opinions from experts. Now, sometimes these are YouTube experts, which means they're not really experts at all. They're just people have YouTube channels. And you could argue that I'm one of those people. 
I don't have a problem with that. That's pretty much true. But the problem comes when you have two experts, you know, regardless of what their qualifications are, whether they actually have PhDs or doctorates or whether they're just some random dude on YouTube, which is again, what I am because I don't have PhDs or any letters behind my name of reference or of note, we'll say. The problem comes when you have these experts and they have conflicting opinions because as the layperson who's trying to solve their problem, then you're paralyzed. You don't know what to do. It's a it's a Levi's problem, man. I mean, for those of you who are young, you don't want to know the hell I'm talking about, but Levi's used to just have 501s. They had one pair of jeans, 501s. And then they came out with 531s and 511s and 509s and 521s and 5 1 million and sixes. And then we went to the local jean store in college. I'm old now, so that was a long time ago. And there was a wall of jeans. And suddenly there were 15 different ways you could wear your jeans. At least there was skinny jeans and stovepipe jeans. And then there were bell-bottom jeans. And then there were tapered jeans. And then there were mid-tapered jeans. And then there were acid wash jeans and on and on and on. And now all of a sudden buying jeans was a stressful experience. And before this was never a problem, right? I'm talking about the paradox of choice. But it's more serious when you're trying to solve a health problem than just buying jeans. I mean, you don't want to look like a jerk because you bought the wrong jeans because you want the jeans that express your true inner spirit. But when you're trying to solve a health problem or you're trying to express your dream of racing your bike, things there's a little more at stake. So it becomes frustrating. So the first point I want to make about this process that's critical for everyone to understand is that no matter how much of an expert someone is, no matter what they've studied or how many years they've been a bike fitter or a racer or how many Tour de France's they've won or how many forums they've commented on or been kicked out of or how many degrees they've got, there's one area in which all these people can never surpass your own expertise. And that is the experience of being you. So a doctor can't tell you that your feelings are incorrect, or they can't tell you when you know with your soul that a particular exercise is not good for you, that you should do it or vice versa. Nor can a doctor tell you that you have to take a certain prescription medication. They can advise you to do it and they can recommend you do it, but they can't tell you to do it. They can't make you do it. So, what I'm saying is ultimately everyone is an N of one. And to repeat myself, this is such a critical concept for people to understand. People, I really feel like people don't get this. I can't say this enough. Bioindividuality dominates everything. One person's kryptonite is another person's gold. What works for me will be a disaster for someone else. And this is so true. It is constantly underrated and people continually underestimate the effect of bioindividuality, in my opinion. So when you go looking for answers for a problem, the process needs to be the same. You need to stay centered. You need to consult the experts, watch the video, try the exercise, try the stretch, try the supplement. And then feel, watch, observe, see what happens. You can discern whether this works for you. 
And if the answer is nothing happens, then the answer is a no. Meaning if it wasn't an F yes, it's a no. So if you didn't have good results from a particular exercise or even outstanding results, then it's an exercise that isn't serving you. If it's working, you'll know it. And if it's not, you'll know it. You just have to listen. So what I'm saying is even all the people who have 40 years of education or 40 years of experience in the sport or whatever, they're going to give you these ideas and these recommendations, but you have to go try them for yourself. You know, some people's feet just don't fit in certain shoes and yours do, or vice versa. Your buddies are all riding on a particular saddle. I mean, look at saddles. It's the perfect example. How many times have you been on a group ride with your friends and you look at them and you go, I don't know how you can ride that saddle. That thing would murder me. It's a hatchet. I've tried one. I know. That is the expertise I want you to tap into when you're trying my program, when you're trying anyone's program. Because I can't know your body. I don't know what you're experiencing. So there may be an exercise that you try and you go, ooh, I'm, I've tried this 10 different times in different ways. And every time I try it, it just feels horrible. It feels yucky. I can tell it's not right for me. Then you should listen to that wisdom, that internal wisdom that you have, that N of one, because you are having the experience of living in your own biological spacesuit. And I can never know that. So I can never tell you what exercise will work for you. What I can do is offer what I think will work, and then you can go try it, and then you report to me. This is the same process in bike fitting. I basically make hypotheses, and I say, this is why I think this will work. Go try it. And then you go try it, and you go, nope, you were wrong. And I'm like, all right, cool. Why was I wrong? And you say, because this saddle hurt me like crazy. It sucked. And I go, okay, sorry about that. Uh, how did it hurt? And we unpack that. And then that information is used to make a better decision in the future. It's spelunking in a cave, basically. So to synopsize this point, it is really important that you do not externalize your power. And in the world of YouTube, it's so easy for us to externalize our power on any topic. We just get lost. It's like, I don't know what to do. Surrender to the expert. Tell me what to do. I just want to be told what to do because I'm overwhelmed. What I'm suggesting is you stop thinking that way. Take responsibility for your decisions. Take authority over your domain. This is really critical. This is actually a quite empowering way to walk through the world. Try something. If it doesn't work, you're done with it. Pretty simple. When you take authority over your domain, you take absolute adult responsibility for your behavior, for your decisions. It's a powerful way to walk through the world. It also lets you breathe into your balls a bit more often or your ovaries. Trust your own instincts. Trust your gut feelings. Trust your experience. No one can ever know your experience, right? Okay, so I think that's important. Your knowledge and understanding is unequivocal in your own domain. That's the way I think about that. So that rule applies to these exercises I'm going to give you. Go try them, see how they work. If they're really challenging and you hate them because they're hard, then that means you need them. If you can't, you must. But if they don't feel right, if something really hurts, if these exercises give you acute pain, especially in your lower back or acute pain deep in your hip, stop and go get things checked out. Go get images. Go find out what's up. Right? That's a disclaimer. Cool. Uh, the second point 
on this that's sort of the other side of the first point is that we can think of knowledge or understanding in two different ways. Uh, technical knowledge would be, well, knowledge about something like anatomy. So knowing the muscular and fascial structure and innervation of the muscles of the hip, right? Really having an understanding, a deep understanding of how the muscles interact and how they move the femur in the hip socket, for example, or the muscles of the pelvic floor, these types of things. This is These are examples of technical knowledge, right? And my technical knowledge is reasonable by some standards, but I'm always improving it. It's a, It'll be a never-ending quest. Then there's intuitive knowledge, your understanding of things, right? And here's where bike fit gets really complicated, especially self-bike fit. This is why people can get trapped in bike fit hell because they have a pretty strong intuitive knowledge of what their bodies can do. This goes back to point one, trusting your instinct, trusting what works for you and what doesn't. The problem can come in bike fit in particular and also in exercise program design to some degree when we lack some of the technical knowledge, but we have a strong intuitive knowledge, then you can really get lost because you have a strong intuition about how your hip feels, but you don't really understand how the muscles work or We'll say what type of activity will produce the type of muscular action that we want to upregulate or amplify versus that which we want to downregulate. And that can be problematic because it means that you can get off track. You can miss the target by several degrees. I know this through experience because I've done it myself many, many times, and I've watched other people do it too. So in bike fit, this is especially true. You can have all sorts of experiences like, oh, I was a good one is I felt like I was hanging off the right side of the saddle and I could only feel the left sit bone. So I put a shim under the right foot. Well, sometimes people can interpret the opposite way. They can interpret that they're getting too much pressure on the left side. So they feel like they need a shim under the left foot. Well, Sometimes this is because they're dropping the right hip. So you've shimmed the side that's already hanging high effectively. I did a pretty lousy job of explaining that. But anyway, it's one example of a way in which we can get pretty off base on bike fit. Now, I have riders who come to me who have intuited a lot of really good things in bike fit too. So that's also possible. My point is that really the ideal combination is a blend of technical knowledge and a strong intuitive knowledge or intuitive understanding of things. And when we have both of these, then we can work some magic. So I just want to make you aware of that general concept. That's pretty important. And specifically in the case of a spiral pattern or a, an asymmetry, the better your understanding of your own dysfunctional pattern is, that is know thyself, the first commandment of being an athlete then the more likely it is you can start to intuit and unpack what will benefit you and start to manage that asymmetry, right? The third concept that's really important for us to remember is or understand is that fundamentally when a rider is experiencing an asymmetry on the bike, they really have, in my opinion, they have different muscle firing patterns or sequences in different aspects of the spiral. And this is reflected in the fascial tension in different aspects of the spiral. 
this is the essence of what's happening. It's the firing patterns. It's the nervous system's relationship with how you're making power. And the challenge there is that the nervous system gets ingrained. There's a law of facilitation that happens. So if you go out and sit on a bike crooked or have a cleat that's not quite in the right place, and then you go ride for a year that way, your movement patterns will become ingrained into that pathway and they become reinforced. Every time you move, every time you pedal with that crooked cleat, it gets reinforced. That, that movement pattern, that movement engram, that's the nervous system pathway that facilitates the movement in that particular way. And in cycling, we move very repetitively. So movement patterns can become extremely ingrained and it can be hard to retrain them or reestablish them. There's a few tricks we can use to do that, but it can require some persistence and attention. So for riders who just want to zone out and listen to music, techno music and smash themselves on climbs or stare at their head unit relentlessly or ride Zwift. Uh, this is externalizing your focus and the chances of you spinning up your asymmetries are increased. So I have bad news for you. If you use cycling to tune out and you use it like a, a numbing agent, if you are injecting cycling xylocaine into your brain cavity, and that's how you deal with all your life problems because you are actually miserable in your job or your marriage or have serious family problems you haven't dealt with or serious health problems that you haven't dealt with or financial problems, you name it. And you're just trying to numb the pain with your cycling. Well, and now you're at the point where your cycling is disastrous or can is dysfunctional because you've got big asymmetries. This is, this is what Paul would call the pain teacher. This is you trying to avoid something in your life and you're trying to medicate it with a bike and now the bike has failed you and is presenting this problem back in your face. Sorry, it's, it's a bit rough, but this is how it goes. Uh, I've seen this happen many times. People run from their stuff, but they're, the problems don't just go away. You can't just run from them forever. They'll show up in different forms in your life. There's a a perfect magic to how that works. You get to deal with it one way or another. Sorry for the, the brutal, brutal perspective there. The next concept that I want to highlight is that that's really important for us to understand a big concept, a critical concept. Big picture is that, um, asymmetries will be magnified as intensity increases. So frequently when I film people in my bike fit studio. I just have them ride along at JRA pace and we can see things that happen. And sometimes we have to have them go harder to tease things out, but often we don't. But if you have a significant asymmetry, a twisting pattern, that is a spiral pattern, and we can see it at lower intensities and we put it together also because I can see it in your movement screen. And I can also see it in your, sometimes in your gait pattern and your standing posture as well it just sort of shows up. It's like a truth that won't go away. When we see this, when you become glycogen depleted or dehydrated, or you enter an event that doesn't really cater to your strengths, these asymmetries are going to get worse. So if you're a very suplex oriented, speed oriented rider who likes flat races and criteriums, and you go do a really hilly road race, you're likely to have more problems with this asymmetry. 
Conversely, if you're a rider who's a climber and all you want to do is go smash threshold up and down mountains all day long and pretend you're Marco Pantani, good for you. As soon as you get in a really flat race and you have to spin, 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 there's a good chance that you're going to kind of twist into a little ball, a twisted towel of unhappiness. It's just the way it works. Those are general tendencies, I would say. As intensity increases, as glycogen depletion magnifies or increases, and as dehydration sets in, all these things get worse, right? Why would dehydration affect it? Well, because your fascia, the fascial tension influences how all the muscles work in this system. Your muscles basically glide in between layers of fascia and all the connective tissue of the body, which is fascia. And that's mostly made of water. That tissue is mostly made of water. So when you're dehydrated, the muscles just don't glide. They begin to slide or they begin to stick. And then things get locked up. And instead of your hamstrings articulating individually, they're all glued together like one giant block. Then things hurt. When your body gets glued together and all your muscles work as one unit, this is not how they're meant to work. This is why they can be separated in a lab with a scalpel so that they can work individually. I didn't say that right. They don't, <laughs> the cause of them working individually is not because we separate them with a scalpel. I think you knew what I meant. Okay. The last concept, critical concept for us to understand the big picture before I get to our general movements and our specific movements, pretty simple. In order to improve your symmetry on the bike and solve all your, your twisty problems, we fundamentally need to find the places that are immobile and mobilize them. And then we need to actively mobilize those tissues, right? So passive stretching can get you somewhere, but active movement under load, this is the way to really make an impact. So what I'm saying is fundamentally our most important method, we have lots of ways we can tackle this. We can do foam rolling and myofascial release and even dry needling potentially. No chiropractic is probably not really a thing. People come to me all the time. Oh, I feel crooked on the bike. I went to the chiropractor. It didn't work. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, that's not that's not how this works. Joint cavitations won't influence your asymmetr asymmetrical postural patterns in spite of what some chiropractors will tell you. They may temporarily change some of those things, but those were fundamentally created by muscle firing patterns. So when you cavitate a joint or pop a joint, it doesn't change the muscle firing pattern. Um, most of the time, I'll say that most of the time, occasionally it does, especially if you hit the ground hard and things do get kind of whacked. Occasionally you can have a magic moment like that. It doesn't happen very often. This is like about as often as someone comes in with a crooked cleat or a bent saddle and we, we change that. And then suddenly they're like, oh, I feel so much better. Thanks. Here's your money. I'll see you later. I'm going to go ride my bike. That happens about once every 500 years. So what I'm saying is that in order to improve your symmetry on the bike and really make a dent in this problem, this spiral pattern, what we need to do is actively mobilize tissue. Uh, what does that mean? It means fire muscles that aren't firing. And so you guessed it. If you're not firing the right hip, you're dominant in the knee, then we're going to be doing some exercise to fire the right hip. And we're going to be doing some exercise to fire the right, the left knee. Remember I'm using 
a counterclockwise spiral pattern or a right hip drop as my example in this case. So if you're lefty, you got to flip that stuff. Okay. General movements to offset the spiral pattern. I've got three things that I can offer you that I think are useful to help offset this pattern. And I've used these myself and I recommend them to many of my clients, some of my clients. Um, now that I'm producing this podcast, I'm going to start putting them out to all of my clients that I see who come in with a spiral pattern. They're going to become standard recommendation. And hopefully through their feedback and results, I will start to incur a database of how useful this is. Um, but this is part of the reason I'm doing this pod is to really make a concrete list of this, these tactics so that I can begin to test them. I wish I could tell you that I've been doing this for 10 years and had amazing results. Um, I can't tell you that. I've been doing bike fitting for a long time and I've given people a lot of different advice. This is the first time that I've really tried to concretely produce a very specific strategy that is oriented towards this problem. So here we go. The first is called uh, a scorpion stretch. So really what we're trying to do is twist your body in the opposite direction in which it is spiraled, right? So again, I'm using counterclockwise right hip drop spiral as the example. You're going to lay down on the ground with your face towards the earth that is on your chest prone. And you're going to put your arms in a T position. So out to the sides, and then you're going to rotate your hips so that your right hip comes off the ground. And then you're going to bend your right knee a little bit. You're going to try to put your right foot in your right hand. And for people who are pretty mobile, this is possible, but many people probably won't be able to get this far. And some people won't get be able to get anywhere near this far, but you're spiraling your body in the opposite pattern. So if you're a counterclockwise spiral pattern, your right ribs and hip tend to come forward. So we are spiraling in the opposite direction. Pretty simple. This is a very simple exercise and we're pinning the shoulders against the ground. So the upper body can't move. And we're just inducing a pretty significant torso rotation into the body. But when we reach the right foot towards the left hand, what we're doing is we're also stretching the right hip flexor in the front or the anterior hip capsule, the front part of the right hip. And we're also stretching the right quad. And I would say that in many people, this needs to happen when you've got a right or counterclockwise spiral pattern. Um, speaking of which, I think I said, I haven't listened to the second pod yet to correct myself, but I'm pretty sure that I mentioned being tight in the right interior hip capsule on right sided hip drop. And while I think that's definitely possible, I don't know that I'll say it's a defining characteristic. Just I'll mention that preemptively as a self-correction or self-modification of what I said. In any case, I would suggest a contract relax strategy for this scorpion stretch. So you might do six to eight reps. What we want to do is set up a tension between the foot and the hand. So if when you reach back with your right foot, you're spiraling and you're twisting and you're reaching that right foot towards that left hand, you cannot grab the foot with the hand, which probably most people won't quite be able to do. Then what you might do is use a band or a belt, just take a, a leather belt and make it big enough so that you can loop it around your foot and then hold it with your hand. And that allows us to get some tension in that system. Or you could use a rubber uh, resistance band or a yoga strap or something like that so that you can pull with the hand and 
and get some tension on that foot and you can pull back. And so when we use a contract, relax, stretch, what we would do is you would inhale and breathe specifically into the right ribs, which are the ribs that are kind of being rotated and stretched. So you want to feel the intercostal muscles in between the right ribs expanding as you inhale. And you also want to pull with that left hand on the right foot. So you're going to give a gentle tension there so that you get a a solid sense of stretch in either the right hip or the right quad or both. And when I say solid, I mean like, we'll say seven or eight out of 10 at the most. Seven is probably good for most people. Don't overdo it. This isn't a set to failure. We just want some tension. And so you're going to hold that for maybe a count of four, five, six seconds while you're inhaling. And then you're going to exhale. And as you exhale, you're going to relax the tension a little bit. And as you relax the tension, you may feel the quad and the hip grow longer or get longer. So uh, let me clarify this a little bit. I realized I didn't quite describe this right. So when you're pulling with the left hand on that right foot, you're pulling with the hand, but you're also sort of kicking the knee forward. So you're, you're in a twisted position and you take that to about a seven or so in terms of your twisted sensation. And then you pull with the hand and you're also resisting, you're pulling the knee forward. So you're generating tension in that knee and hip. And that's during the inhale. And then as you exhale, you relax the tension on the knee. You, you cease uh, pulling the knee forward or pulling the knee back towards the starting position. And that can allow the fibers to lengthen. So in the idea is in a contract, relaxed st- stretch that on the inhale, you apply tension to the muscle. And then on the exhale, you relax the muscle and then it gets longer normally. And so you can actually feel the muscle getting longer during each contract, relaxed stretch. You might do one to three sets of six to eight reps, and each rep would be about four to six seconds of inhale and four to six seconds of relaxation. That'd be as much as you would want. And remember the first time or two you do this, it can make you a little sore and some mild soreness is okay, but we're not trying to wreck you here. So if you really are sore, you, you, we want to avoid that. So don't overdo it. And if the tense, if the sensation is very intense, be gentle. It's better to be gentle the first couple of times and just work into it. And again, disclaimer, if you feel any sense of really acute pain, discomfort is okay. Acute pain, especially in a joint, especially in your lower back or deep in the hip, that's not what we want. So if, and if you're not sure, or if it really hurts, especially when you start to really engage the stretch, then stop and either back off or just be done and try something else. And then go see someone, go to someone who can help you figure out what's going on and tell them what happened and show them the stretch. And then they can, you can proceed from there. Okay. The second one I'm going to call the twisted pillar or the rotation pillar. And it's the same concept. We're going to untwist the body in the way in which it is twisted. So you're going to stand upright for this one. You're going to stand with your feet about shoulder width apart, and then you're going to take your right foot and put it behind your left foot at about a 45 degree angle. So that will require you to twist your hips. Again, your right hip will be back. 
So you're standing on both feet with equal weight on the feet, but your right foot is behind your left at about a 45 degree angle, but both feet are facing straight forward. Then you're going to put your left hand on your left kidney. And then you're going to reach overhead with your right arm. And we're also going to do a slight side bend to the left around your left kidney. So as we're inhaling, you're, again, you're feeling the ribs of the right side of your torso expand and extend. And you're breathing into those ribs as you inhale. And you're reaching towards the sky. And you're reaching with your thumb pointing away from you. And you're also looking up with your head and your eyes towards the sun in a spiral pattern over your right shoulder during inhale. And this can be a good exercise to do with the breath. So you're inhaling as you're reaching, 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 and then you're exhaling, returning to standing. And when I say that, what I mean is not all the way to a straight stance. You can keep the right leg behind you if you want and keep the left hand on the kidney, but you're going to just drop the arm and return the head to center. And then you're going to reach up with the arm and breathe into the ribs and feel the intercostal stretch. And then you're going to reach behind you with that hand and reach the thumb away from you, twisting the arm. And then you're going to, in the last part, twist the head and look with the eyes. The reason we even look with the eyes up towards the sun and over your right shoulder is because the eyes are part of the fascial system. They will add total fascial load. And remember what I said about the spiral pattern in the last podcast it is a global phenomenon. So in order to unwind, we have to work globally. You might do eight reps of the twisted pillar. You can try going back and forth left to right and reverse the pillar and go to the left side as well. That can be a really nice exercise. However, I want to encourage you to consider doing a few more reps on the side that, that we're trying to unspiral. Because what we're trying to do here is build a corrective exercise program. And a corrective exercise program means that you undo the patterns that are done. It's just like truing a bent wheel. You're going to loosen the tight spokes and tighten the loose spokes. So if we go through and loosen all the spokes, we don't end up with a wheel that is any straighter than when you brought it into the shop. And that is what we do. If we do an equal number of rotational stretches in this twisted pillar stretch, we don't get anywhere. So you might do four to the left and eight to the right, which could mean you do one to the right, one to the left, one to the right, one to the left, etc., And then you do a few more to the right at the end only as an example. So that's the twisted pillar. So we have the scorpion is the first one. Twisted pillar is the second one. The third general movement to offset spiral pattern is a split stance with a contralateral arm pull. So what you're going to do is stand with your feet about hip width apart, and you're gonna make a split stance. So you're gonna step forward with the right foot and you're, you're making a box with your feet. So that means you're stepping, if your feet are about hip width apart, you're stepping forward the same distance. So they're about hip width apart forward ways also. Hopefully that makes sense. I've struggled to describe this one, but in my head it makes really easy sense. Make a box with your feet. They're the same distance apart fore-aft as they are laterally. How's that? 
When you step forward with the right foot, I also want you to put about 90% of your weight into the right foot, but specifically into the right heel. Why? Because we want to change the torque towards the hip. And this is an active mobilization. So what you're going to do is squat down into that right hip, but at the same time, you are reaching your arms forward and we need a table or a counter or a bar or a squat rack or something to grab onto. And you're going to grab onto this table with both hands, but you're going to pull forward with your left hand. So ideally we have something you can kind of grab onto vertically. Like it could actually be uh, at the bottom of your staircase. If you have like balusters that can work, could be a doorknob on your door. That could also work a doorknob or a door handle. Um, something that won't move because you're going to pull on it. And so you're, you're doing a movement where you're squatting down deep enough so that you start to feel your right femur contact your right ribs. And when you squat down, you're pushing into the right heel. And because of this split stance, we also want you to drive your right hip back. So you're driving your butt back, but you're pulling your left arm towards the counter while you're keeping your hips relatively square and your chest relatively square. But we want to feel a pulling apart motion diagonally across the torso because you're pulling your left arm forward towards that door handle and you're pulling your right hip away from the door. And you're going to do reps like this. So you're going to squat down and the lower you get, the more the pulling is going to be with the hand and the more the pushing is going to be with the right heel to drive that right hip back. And we want to actually feel, some people will feel a sense of stretch in the right hip capsule. It could be in the front part of the hip where you feel a pinching sensation. It could be in the back side of the hip where you feel stretch in the glute or the hamstrings. Depend on who you are and where your, your limits are. But in either case, we're working on something that could potentially be limiting your, your ability to make power in that right hip on the backside. And we're waking up those muscles. We want to feel a glute fire here. So that's why it's really important for us to put all our weight on our heels so much so that even I want to see your toes just floating off the ground a little bit, just a little bit. So if you do this barefoot, which I recommend, if you're wearing hocus, take those freaking things off. I want you to do this barefoot, um, ideally without socks. So you don't slip and you are on a hardwood floor or a relatively hard surface, a gym floor or something like that. So you've got grip, your toes are floating. So you're driving into that heel. You're driving hard into that heel. You're also driving hard into the ball of the foot on the right side. So the toes are floating, but the ball of the foot is contacted. You're feeling the ball of the foot. You're feeling all the metatarsal heads. That's the ball of the first toe and the fifth toe and the heel. But the toes are floating and most of the weight is in your heel. You're feeling contact of the ball of the foot, but most of the weight's in the heel. You can do three sets of six to eight reps, nice and slow. And I would say you would exhale on the way down and then inhale on the way up for these nice and slow and controlled. Each rep, each descent should take you three or four seconds. Each ascent should take you three or four seconds. So each set will take you a total of, did I say rep? Each rep will take you three or four seconds, um, in each direction. So that's six to eight seconds per rep. And if we do six reps, that would be about 36 seconds worth of work. 
So if we do three sets, four sets, we're working about a minute and a half, maybe a little more up to three minutes. And that's what we're looking for is around three minutes of total time under tension. That's what you want to progress towards. These three exercises, the scorpion, the twisted pillar, and the split stance with contralateral arm pull. These three exercises, you could do these every day before your ride. Do you have to do all the sets and all the reps? No, you could do one set. Just feel it. Just get active. Like bring consciousness to this pattern in your body. Notice if you get on the bike, if you feel more square and you feel straighter, then we know we're getting somewhere. If you don't, or you feel worse, then something went wrong. Or maybe you've misdiagnosed your spiral pattern or the exercises were done incorrectly, or maybe they just don't work for you. And a one. Okay. And then the last part of this pod is the specific rec- mobilizations and exercises I have for the spiral pattern. The, the uh, previous list are, I mean, they're pretty specific actually, but I call them general because I feel like you could apply those before every ride. You could do those every day until we start to make progress. The specific ones I would argue are a little more strength oriented. And the three exercises are, one is a split stance deadlift with a barbell. The second are your hip circles and hip airplanes with progression to hip airplanes, which I gave you in the last podcast, but I'll go over those. And the third is a supine hip extension back on ball, otherwise known as a shebob. And I think these are some of our most crucial exercises for this pattern, for this problem. So split stance deadlift just like it sounds, it's a deadlift, but with one leg forward, same concept as in our split stance with ipsilateral arm pull, but you're going to use a barbell. And for those of you who deadlift, you know about how much weight you deadlift normally, you're going to be shocked at how little you can lift with these. Now, the key to this exercise is you have to use a mirror or a spotter and you've got to watch your hips because the whole thing about this exercise is your hips are going to want to kick out to the side and we cannot let that happen. So you need to reduce the weight until you can control the path of the hip during the deadlift. So you're going to set up for your split stance deadlift with the same pattern. Uh, Hips can be a little wider apart about shoulder width apart, and we're going to make a box with your feet. So If they're shoulder width apart, they're also going to be shoulder width fore aft. And you're going to go up on your toes on the back foot or really the ball of the foot is what I'll say. So you're on the ball of the foot with your back foot. And what I prefer people to use for this is a barbell. In my experience, it's better than dumbbells and it's better than a dumbbell. It's better than a kettlebell because the barbell forces you to really drive with both hips to keep the hips square. And it really focuses on the weight on the weak hip and that weak hip will want to kick out. So if you're not sure which spiral pattern you have, try this exercise and see which side is weaker. And that will tell you if you're weaker with your right leg forward, then you are a a counterclockwise or right hip dropper for sure. Um, I'll say that definitively. That's my current understanding. Now that I've said that, someone will go and prove me wrong probably because that's how these things work. And that's okay. I'm happy to be wrong and keep learning. But I'll say it for now. If you are weaker with the right leg forward in this deadlift and you you really can't do it or struggle to do it without the hip kicking out to the side or collapsing, uh, then that's a sign that that's probably the sign you're, you're struggling with. 
And really, this is just a sign that the the hip is we're having trouble controlling the hip during hip extension. And this is the same problem in the rotation. We don't have adequate control of the hip during glute extension or firing of the glute med and glute min or other muscles that guide the hip during hip extension. I'll phrase it that way. And that's what leads to this twisting pattern. And that's what also invites us to make more torque with the knee. So what's going to happen during this split stance deadlift is you're going to set up a mirror or do it somewhere where you've got a glass door or something you can see yourself and you've got to use your reflection and you're going to watch the path of the sternum, the path of your pubic bone, and also the tracking of the hip, the path of the hip. And if the hip kicks out, then you either need to get it together and drive with more control, or you got to reduce the weight. So we're looking for, I would say, starting off with 12 to 20 reps in this exercise, lighter weight, and we're building perfect form. This is an exercise where we absolutely do not progress weight until you have perfect form. And everything comes down to keeping the hip from popping out to the side. If you see that femur go not vertical or the hip kicks out to the side at all, then you're you're overdoing it or you're doing too many reps or you've got too much weight. Split stance deadlift with barbell. Remember that we need you to keep the barbell as close to your shin as possible. I will do a video for this exercise. Uh, and maybe I might even put this article on my website and just find one, a good one on the YouTubes in the short term, and then I'll do one. The second exercise is the hip circles and airplanes, or we, we begin with hip elevations and depressions, or what did I call them? Hip raises and drops, obviously. And then we progress to circles. And this is where you're standing with one leg on a step and you're facing you're sideways on the step so that the other leg is hanging off and you begin with the hips in neutral and you can put your thumbs on top of your iliac crest to know what neutral is. Your iliac crests are the high point of your hip bones. And then you know where your hip bone is in space and you're just dropping that hip down and then rolling it up and dropping it down and rolling it up. And the side we want to do this on typically is you want to do more reps on the side that is weaker, which is the side you are dropping the hip on. No, that's backwards. Uh, you want to do it on the hip, the opposite hip in this case. I would actually suggest that this one might be more equal in the reps for many riders. I don't know this to be fact yet, but I think that this is how I would approach this. I think some riders might be pretty dreadfully weak in both sides. This exercise will really work on glute med and glute min and control of the hip in space. It is open chain for the side that's hanging off the step, but it's also building strength on the side that is on the step and that's closed chain. And I would say, generally speaking, closed chain exercises get us better results in terms of reprogramming neural patterns and firing muscles and turning things on. But it's a pretty simple formula. Use your N of one do enough reps to where you start to fatigue on one side, then do enough reps to where you start to fatigue on the other side. Compare notes. If you've got good control on both sides, that is you're doing quality movement on both sides, and there's a big number, uh, there's a big difference in the number of reps, then we know that the weaker side will be evident by the reduced number of reps. 
And that's the side you need to work on. Following the same rule as previous, which is if you can't, you must. You progress that drops and elevations exercise to hip circles, making the biggest circle you can with that hip. And then we progress it to hip airplanes. Hip airplanes are pretty challenging, but when you really master those, then we know we're getting somewhere. And then the final exercise in this list would be a supine hip extension back on ball. Shebob is the abbreviation for that. So for our supine hip extension back on ball, we're going to lay on the ball with our head and neck on the stability ball or Swiss ball or exercise ball, whatever you want to call it. And we're going to be in a tabletop position. So your head and neck are going to be on the ball and your hips and knees are going to be horizontal. And then your lower legs, your shins or tib fib are going to be vertical. And we want about a 90 degree angle at the knee. And we want a nice flat tabletop. So I could draw a straight line from your ear, through your shoulder, through your hip, and through your knee. And that would parallel the horizon. That's our, that's our starting position. To begin with, you're just going to drop your hips straight down all the way to the ground. And then bring them back up to that tabletop position. Now, cyclists with really tight hips are going to struggle to get their hips all the way up. They're going to have some flexion in their hips. They're not going to be able to make that tabletop. So we want to work on that. Um, some of our other mobilizations and our work on stretching the anterior aspect of the hip and quads can help with that. Things like the couch stretch or Kelly Starrett's couch stretch or Kit Laughlin's series on stretching the hip flexors are really good. He's got some of those on his YouTube. He calls it... Uh, Kit Laughlin's daily six stretches, I believe. And he's got one of them in there about the hip flexors, at least one. So that's those are good starting places if you're dreadfully challenged to make a tabletop in this starting position, then we got to begin there. Before we add strength to the system, we have to add mobility to the joints. So that's your order of priorities. First, add mobility, then begin to add strength. One really important cue for this exercise is I want you to drive just as you did in the split stance with contralateral arm pull. I want you to drive through the heels. So your toes are floating off the ground, just floating enough to me for me to get a piece of paper under your toes. The ball of the foot is still engaged. The fifth metatarsal or the ball of the pinky toe is still engaged. The heel is definitely engaged. We want 90% of the weight of your foot to be a driving in the heel. This is very important. A tip we can use here is also you can put a squishy ball in between your knees. And this can help a little bit with firing the glutes and keeping things aligned, especially if you're having trouble being organized in this movement. We want an organized movement. So if you can't figure out how organized you are, one way to do it is do a few reps or do a set and have someone film you with their iPhone and then you can look and see. And if your butt's kind of wiggling all over the place, uh, if you're having trouble tracking straight, so if they stand behind you and they watch your hips go down and then come back up, if there's always a wiggle from one side to the other or a twist in the hips, you might start to think about using a ball between your knees, a squishy ball, something inflatable, like a volleyball could work. Uh, there's a lot of fitness balls that are like squishy inflatable balls too. Those can work. So this supine hip extension back on ball is a really important exercise. And for some people, it might be relatively easy. I doubt that, but it could be. And remember, right now we're using it bilaterally. 
one way we can progress this exercise is to do it unilaterally. And this ramps up the challenge significantly. There are two ways to do this. Start by simply making it isometric exercise. So you're not doing any reps. You're just going to hold it for a few seconds. And we do this by taking one leg when we're at the top in the tabletop position and simply extending the knee straight out. So you're going to drive hard through the other heel. And you're going to try to keep your hips from dropping or swinging out to the side. And you may need a friend to iPhone you to video you and watch this to see what happens, but you'll feel it. You'll feel it if there's a wiggle in there. And the objective is to keep your hips level, not let the hip drop on the side where you are straightening the knee. Try both sides. See which side's weaker. Probably one side will be significantly weaker than the other. That's probably the side you're dropping the hip on. Then when you're ready, when you can hold that for several seconds or a few reps of several seconds in a row, then you begin, you can begin to do one-legged supine hip extension back on ball exercises. So you're going to drop the hip down using only one leg and then drive back up to that tabletop. And you can do several reps with one side, or you could switch back and forth between sides. Really, we're just trying to get durability going in the system. If you don't have a stability ball and you want to try this, you can use the edge of a bed or a bench. The bed might be a little tall, depends. You want it to be about the right height so you can have that horizontal tabletop position with a 90 degree bend at the knee. So probably some people's beds will be too tall, but maybe some will work, but you could use a bench uh, at the gym and try it there. It gets a little tricky because sometimes you tend to sort of slide off the bench. So you sort of have to readjust your shoulders, but you could get the idea. But a stability ball is ideal because, of course, then we're adding a little more instability at the end of the movement. It'll upregulate neural drive, which is what we want to do. We want to fire the glutes. So remember to float the toes and drive through the heel on these. Now, I'll just say as a moonshot exercise that a true pistol squat is a really good way for us to demonstrate really good hip control. And when you get to the point where you can do a pistol, or several reps of pistol with good control and supple movement, and it's a clean rep, then we know that you've got good hip stability. If you can do a pistol on one side, but not the other, that's a danger zone. Pistol squats are pretty hard on people's knees. So you have to have pretty bulletproof knees to pull it off. So if you don't know what a pistol squat is, it's simply a really deep one-legged squat. It goes where your butt pretty much goes to the ground and they're not for everybody. It's an advanced exercise and it does require a fair amount of joint health and robustness. So be cautioned. Don't go try and pistol squats if you are on the struggle bus, especially with knee injuries, because you do have quite a bit of tension in the patellar area of the knee with a pistol squat. You can reduce the load of a pistol by holding on to something, a counter or a rail or a squat rack or something and try it that way and just see and play around with it if you can do it. But without integrated movement and coordination and strength of the muscles of the hip, getting off the ground from a deep pistol will be just about impossible. That's what I got. I really hope this information helps people. As I said, I'll film some videos and pop those up on my YouTube channel and I'll get links to those in the pod. But in the short term, I'm going to get this pod out so people can start playing with this stuff. Please send me your feedback. 
Uh, if you have a brilliant exercise you think that might help that I didn't list, you're welcome to send that to me. If you try these and they don't work at all or you're confused, send me some notes. I'll do what I can to try to help you out. I know that this challenge of being spiraled on the bike is a big one. And I know that some people are really on the struggle bus with it. So stick with it. You know, if you're as big of a bike dork as I am, then you know that cycling is worth it. And there are as, as many ways in which cycling screws up our body, there are a few things that can also give us as much joy. So go forth and ride your bike and go forth and try the exercises. Let me know what you think. I look forward to hearing from everyone. You can find me on the gram. That's what's up. Be well, pedal consciously, pedal fast. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.